Katie Pyle is a genderqueer, lesbian dancer and choreographer who founded their dance company Ballets in 2011 to explore their complicated relationship to the cis-hetero patriarchal form of ballet and to make space for their own and their community's presence within it. The mission is to reimagine ballet through collaborative, community-minded and anti-hierarchical approaches. Katie's working to insert the herstory and lineage of lesbian, queer and transgender people into the ballet canon through the creation of large-scale story ballets, open classes and public engagement. Major works include The Firebird, a ballet, which has a lesbian princess and a tranimal, part bird, part prince, Sleeping Beauty and the Beast, which you'll hear all about later in the episode, and most recently, Giselle of Loneliness, staged in 2021. As a dancer, Katie has appeared in the works of Ivy Baldwin, Faye Driscoll, Xavier Leroy, Karen Keithley Sires, Jennifer Monson, Steena Nyberg, and many others. I spoke to Katie when they were in New York in May 22. We talked about Katie's journey in, out, and back in to ballet, their refusal to bow to the traumatic oppression and limitations of the ballet world, and their realization that they didn't have to change themselves, they could change ballet instead. Katie, hello. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm so glad to be here with you. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to start right at the very beginning, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk a bit about your journey as a young ballet dancer, uh, the journey that ultimately led you to setting up ballets? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I started performing really early in my life. And I think that my sense of self got really intertwined as a performer and like my play and my fantasy and my like creativity were all wrapped up in this um performing world uh i did theater as a kid but i also was taking ballet classes and um i actually gravitated more towards ballet as i got to be a tween because Mm -hmm. I felt like it was actually a safer space for me than theater where I was already being asked to kind of um, be seductive (laughs) as like an 11 year old and to kind of um, start to step into these, you know, Beverly Hills 90210 was like everything. And so that was kind of like the world that my agents and my managers were kind of sending me towards. Um, So in that kind of, growing discomfort around sexuality and having to be an object (laughs) i went towards ballet little did i know you know i would find all the same issues there but you know from the outside i think ballet really looks like well it does celebrate virginity (laughs) and purity and um this kind of body that is not fully adult and not fully, you know, woman. So I think there was some confusion there, but I digress. Like that's a whole thing, but (laughs) I ended up in ballet thinking that it would be the safer place for me to continue what I loved, which was to be really expressive, to be creative, to be in a fantasy world and using performance as a way to communicate and connect with other people. Cause I was already fully addicted to that. Hmm. Um, and then as I kind of really got 
serious about ballet, I was, you know, when I was like 13, I became like a, an apprentice in a ballet company in Austin called Austin Contemporary Ballet. And then just opportunities for my training to deepen just seemed like they were less available. So I went to North Carolina School of the Arts when I was 14 and was in this, you know, high school conservatory program where I wasn't really performing as much anymore. It was really just like the hardcore training. And it was very much this place that was crafting the ideal dancers, right? Mm -hmm. So, and like really focused on this like development of us, not just in our technique, but in our maintenance of an acceptable body condition, which is something we were graded on mm -hmm. and like aesthetic awareness, which meant like how high your leotard line was on your leg, you know, <laughs> like all of these like kind of tiny details. Um, and it was very strict in terms of dress code and how we were allowed to have our hair or, you know, any, any kind of personal expression was completely cut off. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of limitation in terms of expression also extended to the technique and the way that we perform the technique. When I was in Texas, I actually had this um, director who was then the director of um, Austin Contemporary Ballet, who let me do a solo to the men's music in like this little performance that we did for some of the um, advanced students. And that was so great. I mean, I still had to wear like a white leotard and a long white skirt, but I got to jump really big and I, he mm -hmm. let me use that music. Um, he was like, oh, Katie can do this. But that kind of possibility was completely gone at NCSA. It was very much like fit into these roles, fit into the system. And the only solo I was allowed to do, because I could do a lot of fuetes, like I was allowed to be... <laughs> like a, a lead flower, you know, and then I was allowed to do a solo from Carmen because she's aggressive and she's more powerful. Um, but anything that was more in the range of sylphs or swans or willies or, you know, Giselle was not for me. And I was really punished and um, criticized all the time for not being delicate enough. And that was my physical body, but also the energetic expression of my body. Um, I was, and I've talked about this in various ways, but it really sticks with me that I was told um, that I looked like a Mack truck when I was doing Grand Allegro. Like a what, sorry? Oh, it's a Mack truck, which is a kind of truck that we truck. have in the US. It's like a okay. big- <laughs> It's a truck. Huge, powerful. Okay, like nice. Like a falling truck. Nice. Um, which, you know, now it's, it's funny to me because I'm like, it's such a kind of dykey archetype, like a trucker <laughs> hat and <laughs> like having a big truck or whatever. Like, so it's, you know, in some ways I was being seen, but it was a hundred percent meant as an insult mm -hmm. and a, a criticism. And um, so inside of that environment, I was desperate to, stay because I had all these fantasies of being in and I really wanted to be in like 
a classical ballet company that did story ballet. So I was mm. like, oh, American Ballet Theater, oh, Pacific Northwest Ballet, like, you know, Royal Ballet, like these serious um, classical lineages, because I love the fantasy, the costumes, the narratives, the stories. Mm. Um, so I was really trying to stay and I was getting more muscular. I was obviously seen as being too forceful. So I had all these fantasies about like shaving down my muscles, like getting a surgery that could like remove. That was like a big fantasy that I had. Um, and then at the same time, I, like everyone else, <laughs> had an eating disorder. And, you know, which is great when you have like a bunch of teenagers living in a dorm away from their parents and eating in a cafeteria. We're like, what can we Oh, what can we do? Like, how can we, you know, maintain the bodies that our teachers want? And it's not entirely true that everyone had an eating disorder because there are some people that are born with very small skeletons and very narrow bodies that just don't have a natural uh, tendency to have any body fat. And so those people were okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like there wasn't any pressure, but, um, I know that their experience was really different than mine because mm. I've talked to some people that went through the program. Um, but me and my friends were always like, what do we do? How do we make this work? Um, and it was consuming. And I think that that is also really interesting because it's, when you're consumed with trying to fit in to a system, you can't think about the problems of the system. Yeah. You don't have this mental space, especially when you're very hungry and your brain is like not getting enough, um, you know, fuel. It's hard to be critical of the systems that are oppressing you. And you're um, young and you've grown up right. worshiping this, this whole scene. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, so that kind of came to a breaking point in my, uh, when I was around 16 and I was told by the faculty that, you know, I really needed to keep losing weight or, you know, kind of keep on this edge. I was like right on the edge of like the weight limit to be in partnering class. Um, I was 120 pounds and I'm now like 145 pounds and I look great. Like that's <laughs> what my body should be, you know? So it was like a very different um, body and it was super hard for me to maintain it. So the faculty was saying like, you really have to maintain this and we know that's hard for you and your turnout's not great. You know, there's all these like different things that they said to kind of push me out. And they were like, you can stay if you want to, but given what you need to do in order to have a career, your career will probably be over by the time you're 25. And someone else said, you know, it's too bad you weren't born a boy because you would have had a great career. And that just at the time, again, was like one of those devastating things. But when I, you know, have I've looked back on that moment as, you know, I don't know, these teenage traumas really stick with you. Yeah. Um, 
And I look back on that and I'm like, why? You know, why is my dancing valuable only in this particular gender expression? Why is my body only valuable if it's in this other binary, you know, like why? What is dance? <laughs> what is beauty? What is, um, you know, what are we celebrating here? What are we upholding? What are we maintaining? What are we enforcing on not just dancers, but on audiences to kind of believe that that's what the ideal is? And what does that do to the rest of society? And, you know, all these representations that are made make their way out um, because the training is intensive. The commitment is intensive. There's a lot of resources that go into creating the system. And then the message it's sending out, I think is just really messed up. <laughs> and it's seductive too, because there is so much going into it. And there are beautiful and talented people that are involved in that world. And that just kind of allows it to keep going. Hmm. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I left ballet <laughs> and I was super depressed. Um, I thought about auditioning for like another ballet school and, um, you know, I, I did actually I auditioned for like the Kirov school in DC and I got in there, but I also knew it was just going to be the same thing. And it was even worse with, um, food, like it, from what I heard from other dancers. So I didn't do that. I ended up staying at NCSA and going into the contemporary dance program, which meant that I studied choreography for the first time, which was great. And um, also ridiculous <laughs> because like, why should the ballet students not be taking choreography classes? Yeah. And it's just I an assumption that you're not supposed to think or, um, have ideas or be creative that someone else will always be telling you what to do um which is extraordinary isn't it considering the, the career is quite short and actually a lot of people are then going to go on and make work it's really surprising yeah, yeah. no it's really wild I mean and I don't know I guess some people do go on to make work but I feel like also a lot of ballet dancers run into another <laughs> space or you know not necessarily even run but just like take on different careers because you know if it's not really cultivated I don't think if it's if it's not cultivated in you in through your life it's very difficult to just such a different role yeah yeah and it's really you know making work and presenting it is so uh tough on your ego <laughs> and I think if you don't get like a practice of doing that as a young person and kind of build up your tolerance for that kind of criticism, then it's really hard. Um, so yeah, I just think that's like another problem mm -hmm. with that world, but. So you found your way to contemporary and started yeah. to choreograph. Yeah, and then, you know, at NCSA, I was still, even in the contemporary program, I was still being criticized for my body and, um, 
sometimes from my forcefulness. So I left that program entirely when, you know, my friends stayed on from high school into the college. And I went to a small women's college in Virginia called Hollins. And I was going to be a poet. I was like done with dance. <laughs> um, and I got there and this beautiful dancer, Shawnee Collins, was across the lawn and I was like, what? And she had gone to Holland's, I mean, sorry, to NCSA. And I was like, what are you doing here? And she was like, there's an amazing dance program here. Donna Faye Birchfield is the director. She's a radical, amazing human. And I was like, what? I got, you know, I got here to like leave dance and get away. But I ended up in this really almost utopian little pocket of support and um, community. And I had a great experience being at Holland's and cultivating more like theatrical dance and just exploring my different interests in like film and feminist theory and um, photography. And uh, I was a drag king and all of these things, all these other parts of myself suddenly got to be a part of what I was making. And I was like, whoa, you know, it was amazing. Um, and I didn't, I refused to take ballet and, uh, I didn't get a dance major because I <laughs> wouldn't take ballet class. Uh, so I made myself like an interdisciplinary major in multimedia performance art, which I don't regret. I'm like happy that it, that's, you know, what I did, but I really had to take this like big space from ballet mm. for pretty much 10 years. Um, and then I started ballets as a joke in uh, <laughs> 2011 <clears throat> and just had been like talking with friends after a performance. Um, I was deep in the postmodern dance downtown experimental scene and we had watched this performance where people were these beautiful dancers and they were like laying on the floor and slowly articulating their wrists and arms um, just from the elbow. And we came out and we were just like, did you all like that? Like, was that, we're like, yeah, it's really beautiful, but also like, what? <laughs> it's also really boring. And these people have so much capacity to do all these different things with their bodies, but it was really considered like gauche and like not cool to be dancing in big ways in our scene. And so we were like, wouldn't it be so funny and ridiculous and weird if we like did pirouettes and like, you know, Grandalegro and, you know, used all of this stuff that we learned how to do as young people, but like as ourselves now, which totally, you know, we don't fit into that world at all. So it would just be this really, funny, ridiculous mess. And I was like, ballets, ha ha, that <laughs> is, you know, I love puns. And everyone that I was talking to at that time had at some point in their life identified as being a lesbian. So it was, you know, that word was really just in relationship to that group. Um, and then it just stuck with me and I've just been on this now 10 year journey of like unpacking my 
ballet trauma, my mm. trying to find my way back to that joy and that expressive connection and um, play that I had with it as a young person. And um, really because I feel like even though I ran away from it for 10 years in my 20s, I could never be free. And it's only like by going back that I'm like getting myself back. Because mm -hmm. um, it's like, I don't, you know, I don't want to bury those parts of my childhood and disconnect from them. And I don't want to not have access to the power of my body to do certain things. And I don't want other people to have to have that same experience. And while I can't control <laughs> what other people experience at all, I can offer a space through my classes and like through the work that I do for other people to come and join me in this kind of reclamation hmm. of ourselves in relationship to ballet, um, which is really healing and, and powerful to me to get to be a part of, to get to be in a group of people that are doing that work um, and to not be isolated mm. um, in my experience because it's not unique. No, I'm sure. <clears throat> I'm sure. It's such a story and, you know, you're, you're right. Why the hell should you deny deny any of that deny your body deny your love of ballet deny your love of storytelling it's you know it's obviously the most narrow and oppressive view and yet you know the love is palpable as well you know that it, mm. it is what you grew up loving and it is where you felt happiest um well in some in some ways yeah where you should have felt happiest um so hurrah that you had that moment and hurrah mm. that uh, ballets came into existence. I read this. I read um, dancers, lesbian, gay, queer, trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming and cisgender straight alike quickly flocked to this light, mm. often working to undo years of neg negative experiences elsewhere. I mean, wowzers. Is that what it felt like? Suddenly you're at home with people at home with the, your ballet. How, how was that time? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely the beginning of making ballets happen was just really thrilling. And I continue to be fed by these like thrilling moments of connection. Um, it feels like there's always somebody coming back or, you know, coming back to ballet, like in a ballet's class. Um, and coming back to some part of themselves, which yeah. is really exciting. I love to see that. It's just like fireworks. It's like this really powerful release of energy, especially because it feels like it, it's usually something that's like bottled up or pushed down that suddenly like starts to come out. Um, and it's been really healing and fun to just connect with people around it and to play and have fantasies and be like, oh, wow, like we're the adults now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we get to choose 
you know, yeah. what this story looks like. We get to choose what we wear. We get to choose like what these characters are. Um, and I do work, you know, really collaboratively with people and like share in fantasies and share in play and desires. And um, so it's incredibly fun when I get to do that. And, mm. um, you know, and all this other stuff also comes up, which is like, now I'm the person in charge. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm a person that can like employ other people and, you know, I will be making decisions. So there's these other power yeah. structures that come up. Yeah. The, the other side of being an adult. Yeah. <laughs> Shame that, huh? Different. Yeah. <laughs> different kind of, you know, thing to, to navigate, which I definitely struggled with, I think, especially like in the middle era of Bellez so far, mm-hmm. um, just kind of wanting it to be a collaborative space, wanting to just like be part of the play and be part of the, um, you know, this very like equal non-hierarchical space, mm-hmm. but also like I needed to make decisions. Mm. I needed to apply for funding. I needed to make sure that things were like working and, you know, um, so I had to sort of shift into a different role. Um, but I'm getting better at that. Mm. (laughs) I think, you know, like that was convincing. It's a, it's a, yeah, I recognize it. It's a reluctant leadership. I think, you you know, I have my own experiences of this. I used to have a theatre company in my 20s and I wanted us to be non-hierarchical and collaborative, but it kept, I kind of ended up being the, the parent and you yeah. know, in charge and which things which didn't come very naturally to me. Um, but nevertheless, I, either you've got to do it or perhaps it's not going to happen. So, um, so it's got to be done. Um, so in that transition then, you're, you're you're obviously you're having lots of fun and playing and you're running this adult organization, but you're also changing the way that things happen with, within the space. I think, for example, I know you've moved your ballet bars to the center of the studio, things like that. T- tell me about the ballet bars. What, what's that about? I mean, that was really, um, you know, I continue, Bella's class continues to be an experiment. So it keeps shifting mm-hmm. um, as I kind of like am working on different things, but it was, very much like in the beginning, I think, you know, the mirror was always this very oppressive force, which, you know, I love thinking about the way like Foucault talks about power systems in docile bodies and like how the people inside of the structure will just enact the values of the system without even being told or without even being, you know, at a certain point, you don't even have to be disciplined. You're just already inside of it. Yeah. Um, so I feel like my relationship to the mirror was very much that, like I was telling myself all the things that negative critique that my teachers had said to me, I was, you know, enacting that over and over again on my body, which is why I couldn't do ballet for a long time because it was just, I would just, fall apart like as soon as I would go into the studio so I was like if I'm gonna have a ballet class or like reinvent a ballet class or play with ballet class I need to not have mirrors I need to turn the attention of the group towards each other and 
make it a space where I feel, you know, like a space where I felt welcomed and where I felt connected, which the first time I feel like I really felt that in my life was going to the gay bar in Roanoke, Virginia at my college and being, a you know, being out. And like, then I later performed there as a drag king, but it's like this whole community that I walked into and I felt really like hot and <laughs> good and like appreciated for who I was. And so I wanted to bring that vibe into Bella's class. So we, yeah, we turned the bars in. I always make puns about like being at the gay bar, being at the queer bar, you know, that stuff to just kind of put people in a different mindset. And the first exercise was just like greeting each other, mirroring each other in a way that is with appreciation for the way someone else is doing something and like letting yourself be affected by that or like literally moved by that. Mm. Um, and then the music also for Bella's class in that era was all like music you would hear in a queer bar. So just all of these like eighties and nineties, like, <laughs> you know, pop ridiculous, um, cheesy and emotional music. Oh, I love. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so that, that kind of shifted. I'm in a different place with Bella's class now where mm. it's, I'm dealing much more with um, the conventions like head on. Like we do have bars and lines at Gibney in Pro Bella's class. We do, there's a mirror in that space that can't be covered up. And, and in my own journey and in my own relationship to that stuff, I feel like there's a certain point where after creating this alternative world where it's like, okay, we have to go back out into the world as yeah. it is, because I want to give people the tools to take with them into other classes and other yeah. spaces. Like I can't protect people all the time. I can't, you know, keep everybody safe. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, and nor do I need to, like people need to find ways for themselves to be in um, all kinds of situations like as they are. So now I'm still interested in all of those ideas, but like, how do we do that in a more classical container? And I have, you know, accompanists that play for my class who are wonderful pianists, but it's, you know, it feels much closer to the traditional model, mm. um, which I find interesting because it's like every, I feel like every step along the way of this project for me has been about like, how can I expand the circle of um, agency yeah. <laughs> for myself and for other people so that that can be in more and more potentially triggering situations. Yeah. Um, yeah. With strength and survive them. It makes yeah. total sense that you need to go through a process of reclamation and celebration. And, and as you've said, you know, finding your authenticity. But yeah, I, and now I understand that can't go on forever and, and you want to be in the in the wider world. Yeah. But I'm sure you and the people with you have gone back to that wider world um, stronger and clearer about who you are and 
hopefully yes more able to cope with the triggering things but but, but maybe also more able to articulate that and yeah. to and to survive it but also yeah call it and resist it and mm. you know just just make it a better place to be for everyone really yeah I hope so I think so <laughs> it's it's very much sounds like it but um I'm presuming that I mean that doesn't mean you've lost the sense of play no it doesn't mean you know so, so how do you I mean it must be difficult to marry those two then to uh, and I guess a, a more of a focus on technique and you know yeah f- functioning in the wider world but at the same time holding on to the values of play in, in the most profound sense I mean that not just mm-hmm. you know playing in a rehearsal room but in terms of uh yeah a non-conformist approach to creation is that right yeah and I think um I mean play to me is like taking on these these ideas or models or systems that we know and then like messing with them a little bit Mm -hmm. like I guess that's that's what I feel like I'm always playing with so even in Vala's class now with all of these professional dancers it's like we're here and I all you know I'm saying these things in class like we're here we're doing these things we're recreating like this same system but like be conscious of how you're participating in that and play with it like you may feel you automatically start moving your head in this like delicate and coy way when you look at your hand and your porter bra. Do you want to do that? Mm. Do you want to do something else? Do you want to do that with like a little bit of irony? Do you want to do it with a little bit of like um, aggression? Like there could be all of these different ways. So I think um, opening up that space to think about it and also I'm always trying to get people to access pleasure. And I think the there's a lot in ballet that can support that and that hasn't supported that in most of the way that it's been taught. But, you know, my understanding of ballet history is that, you know, the dancers in like Paris Opera Ballet in the 19th century were really hot. Like they were basically doing softcore porn performances and shout out to Madeline Mainwaring, who is a scholar who was talking with me about that. Um, And it was a codification of sexuality and sexual expression, which um, was created by those dancers. There was someone else in charge, like making this system happen, but the, expression of pleasure, the expression of um, flirtation was created Mm -hmm. by these dancers in their bodies in relationship to some cultural idea. And I find that fascinating because it's like, how do we reclaim that kind of play and that actual pleasure in our bodies? That's not a performance of pleasure for someone else, or it's not a performance of fear. Like I think about the original Firebird and the Firebird, like shaking in fear with you know this hunter prince in the woods and i'm just like gag it's so (laughs) gross um but can we take that stuff back and 
and mess with it and like use it in a conscious way to express something that we want to express or that we want to play with. So that's something I'm asking people to do in class and to also really admire each other and um, appreciate each other. So we still like, we'll watch each other and I'll be like, stand in front of the mirrors and, you know, watch the other group do the adagio, like clap for each other, snap for each other, like make little words of affirmation, just moving towards a more communal celebratory space. Because I think we also, it's so important, I think, for dancers to learn how to look at each other and Mm -hmm. look at each other, not through the eyes of the system, but their own eyes and their own um, values because I think we lose that so much. So that's something that we're practicing in class as well. And mm-hmm. I feel like that makes space for play because people that are coming in that are professional performers, they want to play, <laughs> they want to perform, mm-hmm. they want to like express something. And I feel like I'm just like, you have permission to do this and like, please do. We're all going to like appreciate you if you do it. Like, come on and so then people do and then it's like really fun and people make friends in that space they go to other classes together they you know so there's these connections that are formed um that extend out into other parts of the dance world which I feel really excited about it sounds so joyful and so celebratory and so the opposite of judgmental and oppressed and uh based on competition Mm. um and I can only imagine what it's like for people to find this space and you know be it be at home there um how is this can I ask how is this for you personally um you know being the adult and and you're, you're blazing this trail I imagine that requires a certain amount of resilience and resolution is that um tough for you or or are you getting the support and the recognition you deserve and and that you need in order to to keep pushing at this um it's you know it's interesting because I I I had this teacher I had I still have a teacher Janet Panetta who is really wonderful ballet teacher who worked with um Pina Bausch company for a long time as like their ballet master and um, her training goes back to Chiquetti and, you know, she's really like changed the way I think about ballet technique also as like something that's actually can be a healthy technique in the body. Um, mm. and her class was really supporting me as I moved into this like deeper confrontation of the actual technique, right. And kind of moved away from just like this awesome crazy play space, which was like the beginning of ballet into like, you know, really dealing with technique. And I just wanted to say that because my class now is really of her lineage and like, that's the technical um, aspect of it. And it was also a space that I felt really free to play. There were like all these burlesque dancers in her class and like nightlife and people. And, you know, it was just like this very motley crew. of community and she's had a lot of health issues over this pandemic and unfortunately isn't teaching now. So that has been really hard Mm. because um, connecting back to my own 
experience and my own love of doing ballet and like playing with it was something I could only really access under her care, you know? And so, um, yeah, <laughs> that's just been really hard. Mm-hmm. And those, you know, those mentors and like that kind of situation is really like just so precious. Um, but yeah, I feel like I do feel supported by, you know, being able to do my work. I mean, I think that's the, the key thing. Um, but I also get burnt out and, you know, it's really, can be really exhausting to constantly try to advocate for this work and this project. And it's, you know, has not been well-funded and supported historically. Um, I'm really hoping that with this next project, we're moving into like a more supported place. But um, when I compare myself to (laughs) the ballet funding that exists, I'm just like, you know, it's just, there's no comparison at all. Um, So it's really tricky, but I'm also like, uh, happy that I have my freedom. And I get to like, you know, I don't have to be beholden to anyone and I don't have to be beholden to these structures because, well, I just wouldn't do it. No, if, sure. You, yeah. If I was. You wouldn't trade. Uh, yeah. But you wouldn't mind it being a bit easier as well. Yeah. Yeah. Seems, seems reasonable. Yeah. Um, let's talk about content. I wanted to talk to you particularly about your production, uh, Sleeping Beauty and the Beast. Um, mm-hmm. How did you rewrite the original stories there and how did you recontextualize them? Because, of course, it's not just uh, the processes or the uh, technique or the dance languages that you mm-hmm. are evolving here. It's also the stories. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, that was a really fun process to kind of dive into. I, you know, Sleeping Beauty was a ballet that I actually saw when I was very young that made a huge impression on me. So, and when I saw it, the ballerina that was playing Aurora twisted her ankle or broke her ankle, like in the middle of the finger pricking scene. Oh God, (laughs) I spent so much time worrying that that's going to happen. It actually did happen. (laughs) It did happen. But it was the most incredible thing because she's supposed to be freaked out and like losing it. But she hobbled off the stage and someone kind of carried her. And then all of a sudden the Violet Fairy came out of the wings. And suddenly it was as if the Violet Fairy had pricked her finger and she was swaying and wavering around. She's still in this purple tutu and she's like doing the whole thing. And then she collapses and they lift her body up. And I was like, what is going on? This is amazing. Like it was just my favorite. Um, It was like such a formative experience because I was like, oh, it's the wrong character, but she's totally right. Like everything's aligned it's like magic um so that yeah sleeping beauty was like always on my mind and as I started to kind of think about this project I was looking at New York City um around the same time that it was made so sleeping beauty premiered in 1890 um I decided to shift the setting to 1893 on the Lower East Side 
because I also wanted to have a hundred year sleep and wake up in 1993, which at the start of the project, I was like, ooh, 1993 was like a really hot time for lesbians <laughs> in New York City. So like, I want to have a show about that. Cause it was like, Katie Lang was on the cover of Vanity Fair being shaped by Cindy Crawford and like Indigo Girls were really out there. I don't know, it just seemed like this iconic moment. So then I looked back um, and I wanted to think about garment labor history um, because I had a friend that I worked with at this yarn store on the Lower East Side whose aunt, who had been supposedly a lesbian, had died in the Triangle Factory fire on the Lower East Side, which was this, you know, horrific um, garment factory fire. And, but it kind of sparked my imagination where I was like, oh, there were these women that were able to live without men, like in these kind of different conditions because they're working in these garment factories. And at the same time, they were like organizing. So I just did a lot of research into that world and decided to set the show in in a garment factory to recast the fairies as um, designers for the factory. And the Princess Aurora would be like the daughter of the factory owner. And her godmother was this like outcast dyke carabas who would come in and like read the baby's chart um, and astrological chart and basically predict that she would grow up to be a lesbian and fall in love with one of the union organizers of the factory. So yeah, so that's, that's what happened (laughs) with that show. And it was, it was just really fun to like, um, to work on. And the second half takes place in 1993, which I had thought, oh, this is going to be like, just really sexy and like, awesome. Um, not, and, you know, knowing all the time that the AIDS pandemic had devastated New York City, but I didn't re- fully realize like how deeply it devastated the Dyke community, actually, mm-hmm. um, because all the stories I had seen as a young person were about gay men and like not, you know, revealing the fact that like, there were all of these women that were caretaking for their friends and that were there at countless funerals and just like were wrecked emotionally and traumatized by um, that pandemic and, um, and that died and that were, you know, continued to be affected by. So, um, so the 1993, half of the show, which takes place in another theater in La Mama. The audience travels from this upstairs theater to a downstairs kind of club. Ah, li- literally. Literally. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And you go from one protest, like a union garment factory protest to like an act up AIDS protest on the Lurie side. So you kind of wake up in this other situation and it's all the same characters, but they're transformed like into their, you know, future versions of themselves. 
Mm. Um, and the fairies who were in the first act are now these um, swans. They're like, and they're doing the dying swan. They do the dying swan over and over again. And there's like less and less of them every time. And that's interspersed with these still very sexy duets because that also was real. I learned in the process of researching and talking to all of these um, people who had survived that era that the very radical expression of sexuality of that time really came in response to um, the rights condemnation of mm. homosexual sex and um, these like radical extreme safe sex practices and other ways of kind of um, exploring sexuality that included like BDSM and were ended up being part of you know how I thought about the second act too so we just kind of go between these very sexy duets and then these dying swans who are gorgeous and beautiful they're doing this beautiful dance but there's also you know a lot of suffering there um yeah so it that was a massive production <laughs> really. you had a live orchestra as well I think yes I had um this group, the Queer Urban Orchestra, who had played for my first show, came back and they played Tchaikovsky for the first act. And then the second act, I had uh, like a DJ set of like early 90s club music by, D by J.D. Sampson. And um, that was interspersed with uh, a harpist and a cellist playing the Dying Swan live. On, like, because why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why not? I was like, will you guys do this? <laughs> really amazing harpist who, you know, was wanted to do it. You know, it's just, it's all been very, um, that's the thing. That's the thing about like community and actual connection to people is that people then offer something that you couldn't pay for. Like you can't, like, it's just not, what the mainstream ballet world has because it's not based on the same economy it's yeah. like i don't know so i feel really yeah i am still like how did we do that that was there's <laughs> like 32 dancers and a 16 person orchestra and then this like dj set and two theaters you know because la mama was like sure <laughs> You want book theaters? Sounds fun. Yeah, why not? Well, I think it's just so, I find what's exciting about it is these, exactly that, the scale of it and the joy of it. And of course, the idea of this gorgeous technique in there, um, but also the politics of it in terms of, you know, the, the, um, the stories that you're talking about, the content there, but the politics of ev everything that you're doing. I just, you know, I find it incredibly exciting. Um do audiences there? I mean, presumably it means a lot to audiences that come and, and you're gathering a following and mm. people, people, um, all sorts of people must be really grateful that this is happening and excited by it. Yeah. I mean, I think with Sleeping Beauty and the Beast specifically, um, it was really so powerful to me because um, people like Neil Greenberg and Esther Newton and uh, Holly Hughes came up to me after the show and were like, how did you know 
like what we went through. Um, And that was just, you know, incredible to like have some representation of that history because they knew that these dikes were so important in the AIDS pandemic, but the, the representation of, of that era, it doesn't include that part of the story. And, you know, so it's like, that was, that just felt great to like have that be seen for them to see it, for them to connect to it. Um, I'm very aware that we've like lost so much of our history and connection to like our queer elders through death, through trauma, through like all of these, um, you know, different situations that isolate us from each other. So like making that connection is huge. And then on the other end, like having my nibblings, you know, come to see the firebird from like age seven and be like the first ballet they've ever seen, you know, and be like, Oh, this is, this is what it can be. This is so cool. And this is so fun. And I could be the firebird and I could be the princess and I could be the prince and I could be, you know, the sorceress and, you know, just kind of playing around like, like that's the first archetypes that they had. So like, that's awesome to me. Um, and then obviously like with my own generation and, you know, like my partner's parents, I loved like hearing from them just being like, you know, they're a straight couple. They've been married for over 50 years and they were like really appreciating the kinds of connection that are being shown, the kinds of pas de deux that are happening. And they're like, this actually affirms the way that we are because we're not in the situation where like the man is lifting the woman all the time and tossing her around and she's helpless. Like the caretaking, the support, the connection that happens on both sides, like the possibilities for how love can be expressed are like, you know, not just affirming to queer people, they're affirming to, you know, straight people too. Yeah. 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 So yeah, yeah. I love all of that. Me too. Um, <laughs> so what's next then? What's next for you and for Belez? I'm working on a show that is going to premiere either in late spring, summer, fall 23. Um, So that's next year, (laughs) just really soon. Um, And I've been researching it for about a year. Um, And it's connected to Capelia. And I've had some like really fun research into Capelia, which was originally performed by an entirely female cast doing the male roles in drag um, in like the travesty era of ballet, which a lot of my friends and people that I talk to don't know that that even was a thing. (laughs) So I'm just like, whoa, that was cool to find out that for like a hundred years, there were basically, you know, only women performing these um, ballets. So, and I'm just thinking a lot about, uh, the ways that ballet automates our behavior and like creates these 
very gendered automatic pathways in our bodies and in the way that we are allowed to express that are kind of dead inside <laughs> and like um not enlivened and like how we can create life force through our own bodies you know those of us who have had that experience um so i'm really drawing from my research in class of like embracing pleasure, embracing play, embracing desire and agency and choice consciousness. Um, yeah. So that's kind of the theme that I'm looking at and I'm also inspired by like Lee Bowery dress up and Greer Langton, um, who was like a East village trans artist her dolls that she made all these dolls um which are really incredible like kind of mm -hmm. fantasies and also fears about her own body so yeah i think it's going to be kind of dark but also very funny mm -hmm. and playful so we'll see <laughs> just sounds amazing yeah. sounds absolutely brilliant okay right so this is the Wait. point very very briefly okay. um i'm going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions okay. What do you want to see in five years that you don't see now? Mm, I mean, I'm like really in a very, <laughs> I'm in a personal space right now. So I'm like, I want to be having, um, you know, Bellas as a company exist in a way that we have class every day. We have rehearsals every day. We have our own space. We have the ability to tour um, and bring this work like outside of, yeah the bubble of new york city yeah. yeah just keep growing and keep yeah. getting that support brilliant okay yeah. um and what is the most exciting thing you see out there now in in the industry maybe or just in your world what excites you um i'm really happy to see that some of the funding organizations are have taken away some of the hoops that you have to jump through in order to ah, like okay. apply <laughs> Um, for different grants. And I think that's going to open up the field to a lot more artists that don't have um, the time and the resources to like spend three weeks on a grant application. So I'm excited about that. I think we're just, I feel like we're just like getting going in terms of performance, uh, live performance being <laughs> viable yeah. with this pandemic, but yeah. I'm, super excited about what's to come and like what people have made in this weird time. Great. Uh, I'm speaking you at a, uh, to you at a time when lots of UK organizations have just spent months and months and months doing hideous funding applications oh. and that the deadline is today or something. Oh, and God. I'm going to get my friends back and we, and we can go out again. Yes. Uh, it certainly hasn't become easier here. Mm. Um, okay. And last question. Um, did COVID teach you anything? Have you carried anything forwards from that time? Yeah. I mean, I think I, you know, I shifted my relationship to the, to power structures <laughs> because I was like, no one's here. No uh -huh. one's going to help me. I have nowhere to go. You know, I started teaching on a basketball court. We were dancing outside. I saw photos of yeah. that. That's so cool. <laughs> but that's really so cool. Fun. It was really, really fun. Um, and I think all of us collectively, I felt a shift away from being, uh, 
like a valuable object to someone else and just being like, we're just doing this because we like to do this. Um, And obviously that requires a certain amount of like stability. We got, you know, we had unemployment here for about a year and a half. And that was like hugely impactful because we usually don't have that at all. Do you mean benefit? Uh, Do do you mean you got, I don't know. It's like a month or like a, you got money, you got support from the state. Like a weekly rate that was not great, but it was like, you could live. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that just like created a lot of space to actually be like, um, you know, shift. I think that just helped me shift my relationship with ballet and just into this space of like, it's something I own. I can do it anywhere. I can do it with whoever I want. I mean, that's been something I've been trying to work on, but I feel like COVID really like progressed that and was like, we're still doing it even if we're on a basketball court and it's like actually better. (laughs) It's it's great, you know? Um, So I think that that really helped me going into my last show, Giselle of Loneliness too. Cause I was just like, and it was at the, you know, with the Joyce, which was like a very intimidating venue in a lot of ways. It's like more ballet establishment, but I was like, I don't care what anybody thinks. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I just have to like it myself because no one else's care is going to support me in the long run. Like my own investment and my own, desires my own like um pleasure is the only thing that can sustain me and so I could let that other stuff go which was a bit painful but then I was like oh this is great this feels like kind of freedom brilliant Katie it's such a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much um I hope you continue to lead (laughs) reluctantly and play and not care and care (laughs) and you know make space and make beautiful work Uh, I'm super inspired thank you very much for your time today thank you so much Well, that's it for this episode of Downtime. I hope you enjoyed it. Do listen to the other episodes of both seasons one and two with lots of brilliant artists and arts leaders. And for more information about me, my work, the courses I run and the artists and organizations I work with all through COAD, the Center of Applied Dramaturgy, go to www.thecoad.org. Thanks for listening. May you be lucky and well enough to have a little inspired downtime of your own.